0: Well, you might have figured out by uh, social media or by this logo that we did not check to make sure it was readable on the screen uh, before, we, before we published it, um, that we are starting a series today in the Ten Commandments. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, and you might have guessed this as well, we will be in the Ten Commandments for the next ten weeks, because they're... Ten Commandments. Um, That's actually going to lead us all the way up to Easter Sunday. We are going to end our Ten Commandments series on Easter Sunday. If you're thinking the Ten Commandments are a weird thing to talk about on Easter, you are absolutely right. But we are going to do it anyway. And I have a lot of anticipation for this series. Because the Ten Commandments, uh, they've been used for a lot of things. They've got a lot of different associations. But I think what we're going to see over the next ten weeks is that what we find here is a beautiful foundation for the ethic of the kingdom of God. What we're going to find here is that this is more than just moral prohibitions or lines in the sand, but that here, the things that we look at the world and we say this is the way the kingdom interacts, they are traced back here, and from here they're traced back all the way to creation. The Ten Commandments are a beautiful thing, and I'm excited to spend the next ten weeks in them. So we're going to start in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read just three verses today, just the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20. It says this, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your presence today that we have already felt, and know is true. God, as we do every week, we come here under the authority of your word, asking your spirit to guide us, asking that anything that is just my thoughts would be forgotten, it would be revealed and rejected, but what is from you and faithful to your word would be remembered because today we are here for Jesus. Let the name of Jesus be the only name in our minds as we leave. We love you. Amen. 10 years in April, Jen and I are celebrating our 10 year wedding anniversary. We did it! We win at marriage. Yes! Our book, 10 Ways to Win at Marriage, is coming out in April. Just sign up for it, it's going to be great. I'm totally kidding. I know some of you are cringing that I use the word win and marriage in the same, like in the same statement. Um, This does feel like um, the appropriate time to say some of the like typical kind of like very paternal, don't think too hard about it pastor jokes. Like the secret to marriage is happy wife, happy life. Amen, right? Like she's a terror. Keep her happy or she'll ruin everything. Um, Yeah, we don't think too hard about those things. Or the the secret to marriage is two words. Yes and ma'am. Yeah, yeah, all right. Once again, she is. Yeah. I hope you know those are a joke. I'm, jo- I'm, jo- I'm joking about that. That's the thing. If there's one thing that I've learned about marriage over the last 10 years is that there's not a secret. Like, th- th- there's not a secret to it. It seems like sometimes we treat as a culture marriage as if it's this thing that if you follow the rules right, you'll unlock the perfect marriage. As if there's like a cheat code that you could figure out, like up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. All the, all the elder millennials just flashed back, right? You get unlimited lives in marriage if you know the cheat code, right? But that's not, that's not how it works. There's, there's not a secret. I, and sometimes I think we, we view marriage as if it's this thing that once it happens, it's going to solve our problems. Right? Like, I've got these problems in life, and when I get married, then I'll have someone to share those problems with. But the thing about marriage is that while you do have someone to share your problems with, they have approximately the same amount of problems you do. So best case scenario is you just break even in the problem department when it comes to marriage. Like, there, there, There's not a secret. Honestly, marriage is the hardest thing that I've done. Congratulations on your engagement, by the way. <laughs> but it's a beautiful thing. I think everybody that is married would acknowledge that it's the hardest thing you've ever done. And you would never trade it. The only thing that's harder than marriage that I've done is parenting, and that's just adding the hardest thing you've ever done to the hardest thing you've ever done. And, yeah, times 10, yeah. The only thing that I have found that comes even remotely close to a secret, and listen, there are are tools that you can learn. You can learn how to communicate better. You can learn how to deal with conflict. You can learn about intimacy. That's why we're having a marriage retreat. Shout out to the marriage retreat coming up at the end of April at the fold. Sign up on our website. Um, we we, We have things we can learn to improve our skills. As we grow in discipleship, as we become more like Jesus, we will be a better spouse to our partner inevitably. Right? But the only thing I've found that comes close to A secret is just the realization that marriage is a covenant. A covenant is a word that comes from Scripture. In fact, God's covenant with his people informs our understanding of marriage. And marriage is one of the primary analogies in Scripture used to describe God's covenant. These are words, this is a word that has deep interplay. These are ideas that have deep interplay with one another. We look at God's faithful choosing of his people and we say that is what a covenant looks like. And then we look at a marriage where two people faithfully choose one another and we say that is what God's covenant looks like. Because the idea of a covenant, it it goes beyond contract. It goes beyond let's sign an agreement to make sure that we are compatible and as long as everything works together for one another, then we will continue this. It goes beyond that. It goes past contract into something much closer to conjoining. I think the best way to describe covenant, and it's it's just worth saying while we're talking about this, that biblically the the, the reasons by which a covenant can be dissolved is unfaithfulness and abuse when someone abjugates their responsibility in the covenant. But outside of that, covenant is the decision, it is a legally binding decision to choose one another every day. That's what a covenant is. It's a it's a legally binding. It goes beyond an agreement because it's legally binding. But it goes beyond a contract because it's not based on mutual benefit. It's the decision to choose one another indefinitely. That's why in a Christian marriage ceremony we have vows. And the vows often go like for better or for worse. For rich or for poor. In sickness and in health. Because in these words we are... Determining what it means to covenant to another person. And we're saying that for better or for worse, I choose you every day. Now, this is not a marriage sermon. This is a sermon about the Ten Commandments. The reason why we're talking about marriage is because the proper way to understand the Ten Commandments. And the law that follows for the next 12 chapters of Exodus, most of the book of Leviticus, and most of the book of Deuteronomy, is as the legal documentation of a covenant. God made a promise, a promise to choose daily through Abraham back in the beginning in the early chapters of Genesis. And this covenant was reaffirmed when God called the people of Israel, when he freed the people of Israel from Egypt. And then he brings them out of Egypt into what what we might see as the ceremony of the covenant. If you read the chapters before, you see that Moses goes up on a mountain and there's smoke and there's thunder and there's fire and there's clearly something sacred going on here. And here we find the documentation of the covenant. Um, John Calvin, the theologian and reformer, says that if you look at the rest of the law, every other law has its root in one of the Ten Commandments. Other commentators and theologians would say that the Ten Commandments are are moral edicts or moral moral, uh, lines in the sand, moral propositions that need a law to be enforced. So the rest of the law is the enforcing or the enacting of the Ten Commandments for that time and place in the people of Israel. But the law, the Ten Commandments themselves, are codes. They are ethics. They are things that go beyond simply the law into an ethic that frames the kingdom. In fact, in Hebrew, when they would refer to the Ten Commandments, they didn't call them Ten Commandments. They would say literally what translates to the Ten Words. What are the words of the covenant? They're these ten. Another way to say that might be the vows of the covenant. What does it mean to covenant to God? It means aligning with these ten statements. That much like marriage vows are not so much lines in the sand as they are decisions of how to choose. Of how to choose someone. And to align your life with that person. So here we find the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Now the words here are important because it's starting in verse 2. God says, it says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In Hebrew, that is translated, I am Yahweh your Elohim. Who brought you out of Egypt, you shall have no Elohims before me. And that's the difference between a name and a title. That's the difference. The difference between those two words is the difference between going to work and saying, hey boss, and going to work and saying, hey Jim. One is a name and one is a title. Yahweh, what we translate Lord, is the covenant name of God in Scripture. God introduces himself to his people and introduces himself in light of his love and his covenant. That is the name by which he is called. But Elohim is a title. Elohim literally translates to the, the title God or the word God in English. So a way that we might think of this, if my wife were saying these words to me, she would say, I am Jen, your wife. Make sense? So then we move on to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And we kind of know what this means, right? It means priority. It means you shall have nothing above God in your life. You shall have nothing in front of God in your life. Nothing should compete with God. God should be preeminent. He should have priority. That's what before means. We see this as a metaphor. This is what it means. God is the best. God is the highest. God is my favorite. Which is sort of what it means. It's not like untrue. But we see that that thinking kind of falls apart if we tie this back into covenant. And a way we might do this is to imagine that a spouse is saying these words to another spouse. Like if my wife said to me, I am Jen, your wife, you shall have no other wives before me. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? Because clearly the command is not saying, I want to be your favorite wife. Uh, clearly, it's not saying, out of all of your wives, I want to be the best wife. If you, start, if you start nixing wives, don't nix me. That's not the command, right? The command is saying something different than priority. It's saying something about exclusivity. Now, the word we translate before literally means before. So we, we often see this as a metaphor for priority, but every time I know of that this word is used in Scripture, it's used to designate physical space. Is used to designate the ground around someone, the place in front of someone, standing beside someone, in the presence of someone. Physical space. You shall have no other gods here. This is exclusive. A good way to think of this would be to imagine a wedding ceremony and you see two... People who are about to be married who are making their vows together. And you might see a wedding party. And you would note that the wedding party is a step back from the couple. And that there might be officiant there, but the officiant isn't in the space of the couple. That in the ceremony, there is a specific space that is reserved for that couple. And it would be inappropriate for anyone to enter into that space. Because where they're standing and how they're standing is designating an exclusivity in their relationship. This space is sacred. So we know that in a marriage that there is a space physically, literally, and metaphorically that no one else can enter. That is not to be shared with anyone else. No one else has that relationship. No one else is invited into sharing that title. You shall have no other gods in the God space in your life. In your relationships, there shall only be one who has this relationship. That's what the first commandment means. In this covenant that we are making, this covenant is exclusive to me. I am the only one who holds this space. Now, if you've been to youth group or you grew up in church, then you can imagine the direction that this sermon naturally goes where we talk about how you don't love anything more than God and you need to lay down and you surrender everything that you're holding back from the Lord, right? I'm not going to trick you. We are going to go there in a minute. But the order is important. We tend to read the Ten Commandments as if the first commandment starts in verse 3, as if the first commandment is, have no other gods before me. But the scholars that I have read say that that's actually not the correct way to designate the commandments. That the commandments start after verse 1. That verse 2 is the beginning of the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In our world today, We don't expect loyalty based on history. We expect obedience based on title. The CEO of your company doesn't come into the office and say, man, I have been faithful to you for for years, so I'm asking you to change positions. No, the CEO says, I'm the boss. Do this or you're fired. Because they have the authority, right? The president of the United States makes decisions not based on a history of faithfulness, but based on the position that they have. In other words, it would be perfectly right and within the bounds for God to say, do you see the fire and smoke on the mountain? I am Elohim. I am God. Do what I say. He had every right to use his title and his position and his authority to enact this covenant. But this God does it differently. Do you see that he does it differently? Rather than saying, I have the power to end you, so follow my ways. He says, no, I am the Lord, your God. I am your God. I'm not just the God. I am your God who brought you out of Egypt. What God is saying is, do you see that you can trust me? Do you see that you have always been able to trust me? Do you see that this relationship is safe? Do you see that I have been faithful? I'm not asking you to commit to me in a way I have not already committed to you. In fact, we see this play out all throughout scripture because in 1 John, the author would write, we love because he first loved us. The, The faithfulness of God is the foundation of the covenant. Our ethic in the kingdom of God is built on his faithfulness, not our faithfulness. The whole way that we interact with the world as followers of Jesus is founded on God's consistent faithfulness. And he asks us to trust and obey him because he has proven himself faithful and trustworthy. This is the foundation of the covenant. This is different than anything else. And this is why God says, you shall have no other gods in my space. I have been faithful to you. Don't you see you can trust me? So don't bring anyone else into this relationship. We actually see in chapter 32, 12 chapters later, but in the next scene in the story in terms of timeline, the people of Israel immediately build an idol. They immediately break this commandment. This is the equivalent of like flirting with a bridesmaid as the wedding procession is going down. Like it's bad. (laughs) It is not good. But they do it. But we see immediately that the covenant was built on God's faithfulness. It was built on his faithfulness. If you read the story of the Old Testament, it is riddled with people not holding up their end of the covenant. God is faithful in such a way that we would never recommend a human being be. He is consistently faithful through failure and betrayal and backstabbing. He is consistently faithful over and over and over again. If you want to be able to live in a life that is ethically aligned with the kingdom of God, the first thing is to realize it is built on God's faithfulness and unending love to you. The only transformative work in your life is first understanding that you are loved immensely and that the covenant doesn't break on your action because the covenant's built on his faithfulness. That's the only way you'll find freedom to live within the covenant, to live within the ethic of the kingdom of God. It's built on his faithfulness. That's why he says no one else in this relationship. No, nothing else in this space. Are you guys familiar with uh, a prenuptial agreement? It's somewhat common in the modern world, and, and there are a lot of reasons why couples would choose a prenup. Um, some, you know, they're, they're financial and some that um, have to do with, you know, bankruptcy and what happened in the case of death. Another reason why a prenup is chosen, for in many cases, is in preparation for a divorce, in preparation for the end of a relationship. It's, it's a decision to say, this might not work out. So if it doesn't work out, I get the house. You might be surprised to know this, Jen and I did not sign a prenup because we were not concerned over who would get to keep the lease to our duplex behind the 24-hour diner. (laughs) It was okay. We'd let the other one have it. (laughs) But in a prenup, and once again, there are a lot of reasons why a couple could make one. I'm not trying to just bash that. But in this preparation for divorce, really what's being said is, as I come into this relationship, these assets are coming with me. These assets are staying in the space with me. If I leave, these go with me. Because I'm not sure if this is going to work. Because there's there's a fair chance that this won't work out. That's what God is saying in the first commandment. I have proven that I will not let you down. I have proven that I will be faithful. I've proven that you can trust me, so don't bring anything else into this space. You don't need a backup plan. You don't need a just-in-case. You can trust me. Which leads us back to that question. What is the thing that we are bringing into the space of our relationship with God? What's the thing that we're saying, well, if this doesn't work out, at least I have this to fall back on? Is it, is it a job? A relationship? Is it maybe, maybe a sin that makes us feel a lot of, I don't know, it, it, it relieves tension in our lives? So we keep thinking, I don't know if God can really bring me peace, so I'm just going to keep doing this thing? Because we could ask, what's the thing that you are bringing into the space? What's the thing you're holding above the Lord? And we could do that. We could talk about surrender, and we could have an altar call, and and, and that would be good. But really the question that we're being asked is, what are we not trusting the Lord with? In what way are we not convinced that he is trustworthy? Listen, we live in a world where it is understandable for many of us to have issues with trust where a lot of people have, have, trust, have had trust broken. Just for the record, that's why God builds the relationship on his faithfulness, and that's why he proved himself faithful before the documentation. Because he didn't ask us to trust until he had proven himself trustworthy. Even though he was God, that's crazy. Even though he was God, he still proved himself trustworthy for generations before the documentation of the covenant. So this is what I want to ask you. I understand how hard it is to trust. I understand how hard it is to trust in any culture and especially this culture. I understand how hard it is to trust God with your family. I understand how hard it is to trust God with marriage and dating and relationships, with finances. I understand how hard it is to trust God with a career path. I understand how easy it is to look at the Lord and say, I'm bringing this with me into the relationship because I'm not sure I can trust. I understand how hard it is to lay that down. So I just want to ask you to do one simple thing. What is one thing, one thing, even a small thing, that you can choose to trust the Lord with? What is one thing? It might be a trivial thing. It might be a trivial thing, but right now you just need the Lord to prove that he is trustworthy in a little thing. And I guarantee you, because we have seen his faithfulness, that he is merciful enough to say, I've already proven it. But I'll prove it again. Because the covenant's built on his faith not ours. So what, what is one thing? What is one thing to align your life just a little bit more with the ethics of the kingdom that you can say, I trust you with this. That's the first commandment. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we thank you that you prove yourself trustworthy. And you prove yourself faithful. Thank you that your promises are built on your faithfulness and they are not conditional on ours. Because we know we have failed you. We know our fears have blinded us. We know we have had such a hard time believing. But we choose again to believe that we can trust you choose again to believe that you have chosen us every day and you choose us again. So even if yesterday we didn't choose you, we choose you today. Even if we're not sure about tomorrow, we choose you today. We choose to trust you. We love you, Jesus. Amen.